0: One really exciting statistic I was recently uh, I recently learned is that 6 months ago we were recording uh, approximately 2500 homeless people now that figure is down around 28% to 1800.
1: Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are proudly sponsored by Build America Mutual, the Government Finance Officers Association, Odyssey Advisors, and MuniPro. I'm Justin Marlowe. And I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, chicken connoisseur, disciplinarian of felines, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back.
0: Thanks,
2: Justin. We, you know, our our guest is is from Reno, and it and it just occurred to me that one of my earliest memories as a kid was actually in Reno, Nevada. Now, as you know, I grew up in California, <laughs> and it was it was one of those like real pivotal moments, you know, that that obviously stick in the memory because uh, we went to we were on a road trip going somewhere. Don't ask me where. I was five, and <laughs> and uh, and we stayed overnight in Reno and went to a bowling alley. And I remember picking up the ball with two hands, you know, taught like little kid style and like squatting down and rolling it down the middle of the <laughs> lane. And I actually got a strike and I don't know how that happened. It could be that my memory is completely inaccurate, but that's how I remember it as a five-year-old and it was in Reno. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sure uh, A good confidence boost in the, in the moment. I'm sure that's, that's terrific. Yeah. It is interesting um, how for, for so many Bay area folks, how a lot of them sort of think of Reno as a mm. and, and Lake Tahoe and that whole region as it's almost sort of part of Northern California in some
0: sense,
1: for better or for worse. But well, so with that segue in mind, uh, our, our guest today is Abby Yacobin, who is the Chief Finance Officer for Washoe County, Nevada. We're thrilled to have her on to tell us all about the goings on there. When we talk, Liz, about a place like um, Washoe County, there's a few kind of really defining trends that are um, not entirely unique to it but but clearly are very much at influence in what's going on there. Certainly one is population growth, all the challenges and opportunities that come up with population growth, obviously, a chance to grow your tax base and to uh, grow industry and create opportunities for folks, but it also then comes with concerns about things like housing affordability and all of the attendant concerns that crop up around housing affordability. It's also interesting things going on in that part of Nevada it's often finds itself in the national political spotlight especially mm-hmm. with respect to election administration and uh, one of the things that we get into with Abby is is about investments in election technology as a kind of uniquely Nevada county concern uh, in a way that is is uh, very much on their on their radar so when you think uh, about this sort of intersection of growing county government, growing counties the kinds of services that counties provide us and some of the unique challenges that come with uh, all that growth what comes to mind for you
2: yeah for sure i mean i think that the number one thing that i hear when from officials in these fast-growing places is housing uh you know i think about places like idaho that are just going gangbusters and and the crunch that rising home prices has put on new residents and established residents and property taxes um, we talked about it previously in the election episode but property tax relief isn't just an election thing i mean that that's something that's happening all over the country as as home prices have gone up so rapidly but i think nowhere more than in these these rapidly growing places and supply chain issues have also kind of played a role there so housing affordability i think has long been a challenge in, in many places but it's really, really gotten difficult for local officials to to figure out how how to manage and I was interviewing somebody recently about this. I mean it's not just build more homes it's about uh, regulations and policy and and the red tape stuff I mean all of those those different pieces that that play into this it's about being more creative with um, you know not everybody needs to live in a single family home with a quarter acre a lot. And so just being more innovative in how to solve this is something that not just councils and, and commissioners and, and the elected officials are talking about, but and or housing agencies, it's it's certainly a chief financial officers and people in the finance department because uh, the money's got to come from somewhere.
1: Yeah, definitely. And as you mentioned too, there's always these really interesting tax and particularly local tax policy questions that come up around this. So much of this growth is happening in the West places that have long been subject to property tax caps, Colorado, Nevada, California, and others. And that creates a a really often twisted set of incentives around what to build and where to build. And it can really work to the detriment of housing affordability because a lot of the incentives say, build those of those new single family homes with quarter acre lots, (laughs) because you have, you know, mechanisms to pay for the infrastructure that don't exist other places, or you have the, that new construction comes onto your property tax rules right away, which may or may not be the case with other kinds of taxes. And if you're depending on things like sales taxes, that creates a lot of volatility, which can be difficult to manage. So it's it's a really challenging local fiscal set of questions. And, and again, in a weird way, a lot of what we do in local government finance can help to make those housing affordability challenges a little bit more manageable, but there's also things that are baked into the system that can make it just that much more difficult as well. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Abby Yakovin, who is the Chief Finance Officer for Washoe County, Nevada. Abby, welcome to the Public Money Pod.
0: Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation. Yeah, we're really happy to have you here. I
2: think our our second Nevada public official on, on the pod. We are going to talk about a range of things. But first, let's talk about Washoe County in general, give our listeners a sense of its p- financial position. Um, what are its fund balances, revenue outlook? Uh, what's the impact of rising inflation? Any Any goodies for us?
0: Sure, thanks for the question. I would sum up the financial conditions of the county as solid. Recently, last April, we received a bond rating upgrade to AA Plus from Standard & Poor's with a note regarding our fiscal management and oversight, and that was uh, very exciting. Uh, Right now, we're closely monitoring, of course, as as is everyone, uh, national, state, and local uh, fiscal conditions. Three of the statistics that are standing out to us right now are uh, taxable uh, sales, taxable gaming revenue, and single-family homes sold. And all of those uh, indicators are down at at this point. So we're closely monitoring, and we'll be monitoring the holiday season in particular. I was uh, reading the Wall Street Journal article most recently about sort of this differential between inflation. is is down from, from a year ago now, and so prices for gifts are going to be lower for the holiday season, but credit card interest rates are up. And so we're really going to be monitoring holiday shopping and that will help us with our trending and, and projections at the, at the county. Uh, we're quite diligent about those. Between 33 and 35% of the county's general fund is uh, a revenue is consolidated tax, which is a numerous types of sales tax in addition to real property transfer taxes. And so we have been conservative in the fiscal year 24 budget, which began on July 1st of 2023. Uh, we wanted to be conservative as we have seen some of that softening uh, in some of the taxes taxable sale categories and the real property transfer taxes. And so we've budgeted a 2.5% increase over uh, the 23 projection, the, the June 30, 23 projection for that consolidated tax. So we'll be monitoring that and we'll be, we report out, or we, we monitor every month and we report to our board every, every quarter general fund property tax totals about 241 million dollars it's anticipated to an increase by almost 19 million at 18.7 million uh, from fiscal year 23 and that's about 8.45 percent and here in Nevada we have property tax caps that were imposed by the legislature and the the residential cap is three percent the commercial cap is eight percent um, and so we're we're budgeting uh, 8.45 which appears to be over the cap but certainly new property entering the books is is not subject to the cap that first year because it necessarily can't be as that baseline is set. On the spending side, uh, let's focus a little bit on the general fund because many of the other funds are either special revenue or enterprise funds or internal services funds. So they have their own revenue sources that are projected and predicted differently. The general fund is, as everyone knows, where all the bread and butter services are are located. And so we're, we're, we'll focus on that for today if we can. On the spending side, we have three major increases that are coming to mind in addition to the normal inflationary things that we see and that everyone around the country is seeing. Our public employees retirement system, our legislature uh, changes rates every two years when the legislature meets. And uh, so that we saw a large increase of about six and a half million dollars on the general fund as of 7-1 of 23. Other post-employment benefits, we um, have an explicit rate subsidy where we, um, you know, we, we calculate and, and budget for our annual required contribution and so that we're seeing a large increase there. In addition, and this is an increase on the spending side, but I'm really proud of the county because when I first got here, actually even during my interview a year and a little bit ago, they said to me, "Will you will you help us with our our salary study we're doing the first in over 20 years, and we really need to roll this out and employ to employees in a transparent way so everyone understands it." And of course, was happy to do that. But because we're now you know putting people into the board's policy of 50% of the median, um, you're seeing uh, employee costs go up, and so that's about eight and a half million dollars on the general fund this year. So, you know, we're as we're right-sizing some of those salary bands, we're seeing the impact on on the general fund. So the the board is is very conservative, and so we try to use any surplus where when we projected the 23 year end the projected year-end fund balance was a little bit over 23%, and as I can get into in a minute, our policy is between 10 and 17%. So the the county manager and board of county commissioners historically, and and this is sound, and I, I agreed with it when I got here, and, and still do, use that as one-time vending authority, uh, and so they they prioritize some key one-time projects. So to conclude, the county, I would say the word solid, solid financial condition comes to mind. We continue to be conservative. We continue to monitor at the national level, the state level, and local events and trends. Uh, The internal statement that we seem to be using right now is priority focused, meaning uh, that we we say we're focused on the Board of County Commissioner's vision. We monitor the revenues that fluctuate with economic changes, such as the sales and real property transfer tax, in addition to any other elastic, uh, smaller but um, also elastic charges and fees.
1: So Abby, when we think of, of Washoe County, for a lot of us, what comes to mind is population growth. Um, your population has grown by about 20% over the last 15 years. Despite that, in light of what you were just saying with respect to your workforce, uh, your workforce is roughly the same size that it was about 15 years ago. How's that worked? How have you managed to, to grow so quickly but keep keep your workforce at roughly the same levels. And and now from what you were just saying, adjusting salaries for, for existing employees as well, it sounds like.
0: Yes, we're really, really proud of this. Um, I'm glad that you asked that. In fact, I presented it to our Board of County Commissioners in public at the May 16th final budget final budget discussion, and we showed a chart of the historic uh, staffing levels, and, and this was notable, so I'm glad you asked about it. We're proud of it, we're forward-thinking, and we try to use common sense when we solve uh, problems. And in fact, our strategic plan, our board recognizes this in our strategic plan. They have four major objectives, but one is called Innovative services, and we enable our employees to work as efficiently and effectively as as possible through technology and wherever possible uh, hybrid work schedules. Um, We've implemented much technology in online services. We've engaged in process automation and improvements, Uh, and I think the most important but least talked about is training and communication. The county um, really embraces improving efficiency and employee understanding of the county direction. We feel that it makes for a a more efficient workforce force if people know, you know, that they can use new technologies, that they should use new technologies, that we're willing to try new things. We want the best experience for the customer. And so we we try to streamline things as much as we possibly can. And I wasn't here for the beginning of the pandemic, but in reading and speaking to my coworkers, um, many of these things were tried as a result of the pandemic and the strategies and technologies and processes that worked, we retained those. I'll say one more thing is that leadership, this kind of starts at the tone at the top. Leadership in our organization is very progressive and tech savvy, in addition to taking that customer-centric perspective. So we routinely discuss the impact of new technologies on our stakeholders and our customers. We're quite focused on it. Um, For example, we just introduced a a new e-comment tool for our Board of County Commissioners meetings called Speak Up, and that allows the stakeholders to make public comments online before Commission meetings. It works well for people who work or cannot attend our our meetings, but they still want their voices heard. And it allows the Board of County Commissioners to get a, a broader group that, as I say, cannot attend our meetings to make those comments. That's just one example that comes to mind. So that that population growth, how has that uh, has that put pressure on housing and and
2: how has that affected the the housing and unhoused in in the in the county?
0: It's a good question, if I can talk about three different things on this one. Uh, homelessness, affordable housing, and mental health. The county and our and the cities in our region, um, Sparks and Reno, have recognized the housing affordability and the resulting homelessness as a top priority for us. In fact, the county includes this in this strategic plan as one of the other four uh, main objectives. We just talked about innovative services, now this is vulnerable populations. Uh, so helping people become stable and thrive in our community, uh, is on the forefront of our elected officials' minds and their discussions, and, and you'll see that as we talk about these topics. Homelessness, if I can start in early 2021, um, the county stood up what we call the Cares Campus uh, quickly in early 2021 as a response to the pandemic, as the former Record Street shelter wasn't adequate as we saw rising case numbers of COVID and the required social distancing. For prospective Record Street had 208 beds, I believe it was, and the Cares Campus started with. With 604 beds. So that, that expansion was really necessary and we had to stand this up quickly. CARES campus has expanded and now we have varying levels of housing for different levels of independent living and eventual transition to permanent housing. I'm excited to tell you we recently. I was recently reading an article and, and studying this. Our, our homeless services team is very strong and we recently achieved what we call or what is called built for zero data status, meaning we have accurate real-time data counts for our veteran and single homeless people entering the shelters. Uh, we collect this data to truly understand the customer's need and needs and the trends coming into and out of the shelters. So we make sure to partner with the correct agencies to provide the services that the population actually needs. Our team meets with local nonprofit and private sector partners every two weeks to ensure that we're able to predict and respond to any changes in service needs. And we discuss how to house people with those different needs as quickly as possible. And we've begun um, benchmarking success rates as part of our strategic planning outcomes. Uh, One really exciting statistic I I recently learned is that six months ago we were recording uh, approximately 2,500 homeless people. Now that figure is down around 28% to 1,800, which is great to hear just before the winter uh, because, uh, you know, it was 30 degrees out this morning. It's cold transitioning topics a little bit to affordable housing, because I know you asked about that as home prices have increased and how are we handling and addressing that in a couple different ways. The county recently contributed $2 million to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, which is maintained by a local nonprofit to fund opportunities for affordable housing. We're not the lead agency on affordable housing. We lead the homelessness effort and the stabilization efforts at the very beginning of of the journey. The City of Reno and Reno, Reno Housing Authority are the local agencies in charge of of affordable housing. But it is a regional priority as the county's population grows and industry diversifies from a gaming and service economy to a tech manufacturing uh, rich region. People and businesses are choosing to locate in our area. We want to do whatever we can to ensure that they can afford to live, work, and raise their families here. And as interest rates continue to climb and the economy uh, slows a little bit, we're not likely to see a reduction in the need for the services for these vulnerable populations or affordable housing. Uh, and so it's notable that we control the, the codes and the regulations for, uh, for the unincorporated portions of the county, and 75% of Truckee Meadows residents, which is our region, live in the city of Reno and Sparks, but, but housing affordability is also a critical concern within the unincorporated county. Last January, our board engaged in a strategic planning retreat, our board of county commissioners, a retreat for strategic planning and identified housing supply and affordability as a key priority during this fiscal year. Uh, Our strategic plan calls for streamlining planning and permitting processes uh, and softening standards that create unnecessary barriers in addition to uh, exploring incentives to spur the creation of affordable housing and a broader range of housing types for the unincorporated Washoe County area. We're really excited to say that last Tuesday, our board approved a plan to move forward on four priority code amendment packages focused on those things. There's no magic solution. We understand that, but we're attempting to tackle the problem in in multiple small ways. And we know that these incremental ways will make a difference. And we have the philosophy that every little bit helps if I can transition into mental health because we we feel that affordable housing, homelessness, mental health, we can talk about these all uh, in one one topic here. Uh, our board uh, met a couple weeks ago and at the end of October and created a vision for the upcoming fiscal year. It includes taking a leadership role in the mental health situation. I don't know that it's a secret that Northern Nevada is a desert for mental health services and the county's court judges report seeing multiple generations of family members over the years. This is not cost-effective uh, and, and we know it's not healthy for our community. And we feel that this proactive approach is, is exciting and it's very much needed. This will reduce homelessness and, and crime as well, we believe, and improve the overall health of our community and the county at large.
1: So Washoe received about two hundred million in federal money. Has the federal money led to any ongoing spending pressures um, for new services? This is something we always like to talk with CFOs about. Uh, kind of the, the double edged sword that's been that that federal money. It certainly was helpful in helping with some stop gaps, but then also potentially creating some some running uh, pressures for spending. And then uh, I guess as a, a related question too, and you had hinted at this a little bit, did it give you an opportunity to make any sorts of investments? Um, that might help to create more efficiencies or, or reduce other kinds of spending later on.
0: Yes, I'm proud that the county has been very, um, what I'm calling structured and judicious about receipt and disbursement of the federal funds. Uh, the Board of County Commissioners made their priorities clear as as they do, as I'm learning just being here just over a year, our board will set the tone, set their priorities, and then direct us to go and execute on those. And knowing that purpose and that vision makes our job as staff a little bit easier. Uh, As different requests are scored by our different experts, we take the projects, each project that comes forward as our departments and and outside entities make proposals, we score them. And that makes the scoring that much easier because we can use the board's priorities. Uh, In their priorities, there were five of them, address health disparities known to directly influence social inequities, address the root causes of homelessness, bolster economic recovery, enhance childhood environments, and build stronger neighborhoods. And of course, they had language describing what that means to them under each area, and that could probably be a separate separate discussion as well. Um, But some examples that we've done are, um, you know, the, the CARES campus, we've talked about that a lot. We budgeted eight million dollars for operations on the CARES campus, and some some of that is ongoing. Uh, and so what we've done is I can give you a, a bit of an example of we we brought back one one and a quarter million, one point two four million back onto the general fund. So we're trying to do that slowly as we creep toward the uh, the 26 expiration of the federal funds. We have a policy of not putting ongoing costs onto the federal funds, but in the cases where we do it, it's conscious, it's calculated, and we have a, a plan for migrating back uh, to to other funds, other grant funds, or the general fund, wherever is is appropriate. So we we tried to do some projects uh, that were done by our departments that were helping helping our customers through the departments and through our internal, but much of the uh, much of the funds were pushed out into the into the community into our local nonprofit partners uh, so that they could uh, serve the public as well. And so we did a combination of both, but always with the taxpayer and stakeholder in mind and helping people emerge from this pandemic in a very judicious way. And one thing I'll, I'll mention to you is uh, we have a Power BI dashboard that I'm very proud of. When we go back and report to our board of county commissioners, we always. Show them this power bi dashboard it's on our website and i'd encourage you to to check it out and it's on our on our website www.washoecounty.gov
2: abby before coming to washoe county last year you were deputy finance director for the city of las vegas and so there is probably no government cfo who knows more about you than the gaming industry and how that affects local government finance so as Gaming is expanding around the country. What advice, if any, do you have for local government CFOs ma- trying to, you know, manage this, or any
0: any challenges for them? That is an interesting question. Uh, if I can expand it a little bit. Uh, this goes back to the Government Finance Officers Association's best practices around government reaction through policies to different types of revenues. Uh, fund balance and reserve policies should be directly related to the size of the fund, the diversity of the revenue uh, and expenditures, in addition to the elasticity of that revenue and the causes for the fluctuation on the revenue and the spending sides. In my personal experience, I'm from the state of Maine, uh, and so I served as a finance director in, in municipal government in Maine as well. So from my personal experience on the East Coast, where property taxes are generally a larger portion of the general fund, I've seen smaller fund balance requirements as those taxes are more stable and enforceable through the foreclosure and repossession processes. As we move to the west, sales tax seems to, in my experience, comprise a larger portion of general fund revenue. And while I would make the argument, and people have debated with me about this, so there is definitely more than one perspective on this. I would argue that this model, with a larger portion being sales tax, is better for the taxpayer because they're paid. You know, sales taxes are paid a few pennies at a time versus property tax, which can be thousands of dollars at a time. In addition to sales tax being somewhat discretionary, Um, those those types of revenue are more volatile for governments because as you watch economic times slow people stop spending sales tax slows at a time when government needs to provide more services for the community so it's almost a double whammy for governments that depend on sales tax in my experience the governments uh, those governments have to hold more in fund balance and reserves due to the sensitivity in the revenues and in those economic changes it's fascinating from a taxation and equity perspective and i've been watching it for you know almost 20 years now one thing I've observed coming to coming back to the Nevada focus of your question uh, is that Southern and Northern Nevada have very different economies. I was really surprised by that when I moved up here to Northern Nevada. People think Nevada is Nevada, it's all Southern Nevada, it's all Las Vegas, um, but that's not true. Both w- regions have very different economies and both have done very well at diversifying those economies over the last uh, 15 or so years. Uh, Liz, I believe you mentioned that time frame earlier and I agree with you. From service economies associated with gaming, uh, the South has become a sport and an innovation Uh, mecca and destination and the north has drawn some very large manufacturing technology and logistics uh, distribution industries i'll argue that nevada has the best of all the worlds in that we're a progressive taxation state because we have relatively low property tax and no personal income tax and we're a destination so we export some of that sales tax to those visiting our region nevada is a great place to be in local finance it is absolutely fascinating and fast-moving
1: I noticed in your in your spending plan for 2324 that there's a, a big upgrade to election systems and we've talked a couple of different times on this podcast about the public finance of election systems and certainly this is a big thing for for all counties Washoe County in particular tell us a little bit about those investments in the in election system technology and is it a coincidence that this is happening ahead of the 24 election or was this something that was in the works
0: the county is investing heavily in the Registrar Voter's Office in, in many areas, including uh, one-time and ongoing investments. I believe the funding you're referring to is the Fiscal Year 24 budgeted amount of $12.6 million, uh, for new software program for elections, in addition to a server replacement and a, a ballot opener machine. The county knew that it needed to study the Registrar's Office and apply nationwide best practices in order to keep up with post-pandemic and more prevalent mail-in ballot voting systems system. That shift, in addition to needing new software, gave us the perfect nexus to engage outside consulting help uh, for some best practice suggestions. We received, um, we're very happy to receive over 250 suggestions from the outside consultant in eight different functional areas uh, that department, to give you some perspective, has doubled in size uh, with 10 new positions being granted, and I believe all of them are filled now, uh, through the 2024 fiscal year 2024 budget. And we're getting pre- uh, prepared for our first presidential preference primary election on February 6, 2024. And while we no longer need to procure the original software we thought we'd be purchasing due to it being purchased uh, elsewhere, we're going to use some of that 12.6 um, one-time funding for various machines and equipments. Uh, based on the consultant's review and advice. So what we planned on doing, we'll be doing differently. And thank goodness the board had the foresight to put that $12.6 million into the budget so that we can we can adopt many of the suggestions from the consultants. It's really important to our board, and they've said it publicly several times, that the public trusts in our elections and we're putting our money where our mouths are uh, in the 2024 budget on the ongoing side and the one-time side.
2: Well, Abby, you've been in municipal finance for a couple of decades now. And- in a variety of different places. I mean, I can't think of two places that are more different than Maine and, and uh, Reno, Nevada. But uh, as you progress through car- your career, you're taking on more demanding leadership roles. Do you have any advice for uh, local finance professionals who, who want to become a CFO or who are looking to to rise in the ranks in their local government?
0: Yes, Have relationships with your customers, internal and external. Uh, They're so important. Have them make them right away and focus on them. Um, Listen to your customers actively uh, and and give them your, your full attention. Get to know their needs and their motivators so you can help them with their projects and initiatives. I call them my customers. They're our departments because we're an internal services department and area. I find that people often see financial employees and as gatekeepers. But once you get those good relationships and you keep them, you, you already bring your technical competency to the table and to the position. And once you bring those those communication skills, people begin to look at you like a resource and they call you when they can't figure out how to get things done. And so that gives you the ability to plan and vision with them versus fixing things on the back end and finding, finding funding after the fact, which is much easier and it furthers your community's ability to have fiscal sustainability and fiscal discipline and it sets the tone uh, for for good trust and cooperation with finance sometimes we think that because we're so technical in nature and we all we all do this we fall back on what we know we fall back on what we're comfortable with which is what the technical piece where we started uh, we think that's what we should be doing uh, as we move forward into the executive positions and I always challenge myself and other people who who want to I have a I currently have a mentee with GFOA, and I we, we challenge each other. I challenge her uh, to become less of a technician uh, and more of a translator and ambassador for the fiscal health of both of our agencies. I do much less explaining individual numbers and more helping our departments and stakeholders get where they need to be, understand the county's vision, uh, and get their programs and services and infrastructure that's needed to serve the public done. Um, so, So I find myself, and even in this podcast, we've kind of been less technical in terms of the percentage increase here and the percentage decrease there. And we haven't used the word debit and credit at all. I don't talk in those terms as much anymore. Those things are not possible unless your team is solid. So make sure your team is solid. I'm only able to do what I can do because my team is amazing. They are technical, they are competent, they are team players, they are willing to try new things to help the county and help improve our fiscal health. So my advice is, and this is something I heard 15 years ago from a mentor back in the day, hire the best people you can and get out of the way. Uh, One thing I'm noticing as I am no longer the first new generation into the workforce or by far now, um, is encourage the intergenerational cooperation and working together. I learn so much from the the generations above me and and the new people coming into the workforce. It is incredible and it makes us more productive and it makes my thinking change and I enjoy that. Um, It enables productivity. Everyone learns something from that. And The last thing, it sounds easy, but we don't always do it when we're falling back into what's familiar, which is that technical piece. Ask questions and actually be curious about the answers.
1: Well, thanks so much to Abby Yacobin, CFO from Washoe County, Nevada, for telling us all about the goings-on in Washoe County, as well as financial leadership for local governments writ large. We really appreciate you giving us some time here on the Public Money Pod today.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity. really appreciated it.
2: Thanks again to Abby Jacobin for, for joining us and dropping a lot of knowledge on us during that during that interview. I'm going to have to go back and listen to to the tape again just to, to be able to absorb it all. She really kind of brought her A-game there with, with all the details. And one of the things that she talked about really ties well with our Ripped from the headlines this week, which is her points about housing and, and being in, in a fast-growing city or county. The story this week is from the San Francisco Chronicle, and it's uh, titled San Francisco Exodus, What We Can Learn from the U.S. US's fastest growing big city. The datelines from Seattle and the story is written by Roland Lee and it does kind of a compare contrast between San Francisco and Seattle. Interviews some people who are transplants from the the Bay Area to Seattle. Uh, one family in particular that uh, that he interviewed lived in Pleasanton and commuted to Silicon Valley, which is actually not in San Francisco. It's it's south of it, but uh, the in terms of the, the larger Bay Area, he had a 90-minute commute every day, which sounds terrible to me. And I'm imagining that's that's uh, that's with traffic and all of that. And wanted to move because not only because of the commute, but everything got expensive. The annual wildfire smoke, widespread bottles, moved to Seattle and is much happier. And he, the, the reporter interviews uh, several other people who kind of have similar stories of moving to Seattle and, and appreciating the, and th- they say the the more relaxed lifestyle, easy access still to natural amenities, but one of the other things they all seem to consistently cite too is that uh, that there's a pro-growth housing policy with less red tape compared with California, and there's more downtown housing compared with San Francisco's office-heavy district. And so the story notes too that Seattle has, both cities lost population right in 2020 during the during the pandemic, but beginning in 2021, Sam, Seattle gained, started gaining population back. Uh, that year, between 21 and 2022, Seattle saw a gain of uh, just under 18,000 people, which amounts to a 2.4% increase in population. Meanwhile, San Francisco kept losing people, lost about 2,800. For that city, amounts to a 0.4% decrease in population. So they're starting to go in opposite directions. Another point the story makes about housing, too, that I found really interesting is that there's a stark difference between Seattle and San Francisco. Seattle approved more than three times as much housing as San Francisco from 2015 to 2021, and that's according to census data. Seattle allows most housing projects to be built without extensive review periods, and the city council only rarely votes on projects. And this is in sharp contrast to the Bay Area's typical um, appeals, lawsuits, and battle measure, b- ballot measure fights that can happen over housing developments. And that is according to the director of the, of the Seattle think tank. Sightline Institute. And one more thing regarding just in terms of downtown vibrancy, the story also notes that Seattle's downtown makes up just 4% of the city's landmass but it's home to more than 14% of the population and it says nearly 4,000 apartments were built from 2019 to 2022. It it compares that um that to uh, another kind of sort of growing area in San Francisco, at least that they've targeted for growth. That area has um, 45, 4,500 housing units planned, but only 2,666 have been built as of 2021. So again, there's another another example. And the last piece about this kind of idea of downtown vibrancy uh, that some of the people interviewed in the story have cited is The story notes that Amazon, which obviously is a really, really big employer in Seattle, began requiring workers to return to the office three days a week. This was back in May. And the story adds that, and over the summer, local coffee shops, cafes and sandwich spots started filling up again. And San Francisco, you still have a lot of those tech companies that they aren't doing doing if they are requiring a return to the office, which I, as far as I have seen, most of them are not to that degree to three days a week. And so the that idea of remote work being much more of a, a factor here in San Francisco than it has been in Seattle, at least to that degree in terms of people showing up and, and being in places downtown and, and you know providing that that growth for businesses. That, that's another kind of compare contrast between those two cities. I don't know how it plays in with the, the cost of housing, but that's just another kind of thing that I noted while reading the story. Justin, what were some of the thoughts that you had in, uh, on on this story and how they related to the conversation?
1: Yeah, it connects nicely to a lot of the themes that came up in the conversation with Abby, especially the role of local governments and thinking about their role in Housing affordability in ways that go beyond the sort of traditional things that we think about. Right, we often think about the role of local governments and, and state governments, especially as sort of building housing. And as you pointed out, it's that's a piece of it. But in so many ways, the the more powerful tool, the more uh, the you know the, the the bigger lever to pull, so to speak, is on the regulatory side. Having lived in Seattle for eleven years, a lot of this rings true. We were there as a lot of this was happening. And it's it's interesting that we're talking about this now too. The day after the weekend that uh, OpenAI had a bunch of drama around its board of directors and at the moment, at least it appears as the open AI might be coming over to Microsoft, which would be an additional, presumably, source of growth uh, for, for greater Seattle, which would be very interesting to see. People there criticize the uh, many parts of the approaches that have been taken, but there's no question that they have done a lot on the regulatory side. Everything from allowing developers a lot of flexibility in the way that they contribute to housing affordability. It's not just including affordable units within new buildings that are being built, they've created all sorts of additional funds, abilities to invest in nonprofits, abilities to invest in uh, local economic development and labor skills development writ large. So some really creative things that have been done. And I think what this piece points out is that there's definitely been some, some response to that, that you are seeing a lot more being built. You are seeing uh, a response to those growth pressures. Many people think that it's not nearly enough, that it's just out of control, runaway growth. And that's those are fair criticisms. But I think uh, the essential point of this article, and again, dovetailing very nicely on some of what we discussed with Abby is that there are things that you can do as a local government and they require some creativity and and some, you know, for, for lack of a better word, willingness to, to bend or even break the rules at times from a fiscal perspective, uh, but that they can be done and, and it can make a big difference at the end of the day. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, Munipro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Bernick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Podcast.